We are happy to announce that this episode of the SW Show is partially brought to you by Humble Bundle. Well, not, not really. We are part of the Humble Bundle referral program, and we just wanted to say that if you like really cheap games and maybe helping charity pending the Humble thing going on, all you have to do is go to humblebundle.com forward slash question mark partner equals SWW. That's right. Humblebundle.com forward slash question mark partner equals SWW. And you just do your normal stuff and it just kind of helps us get a couple bucks here and there. Maybe it helps AJ go about his lights. Maybe it's my camera. Maybe we actually pay Corey for helping us out. But again, if you're going to go buy games anyway, it might be worth checking out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to one of these interview episodes of the SWW Show. I'm Mike, and here with me a special guest from decently around the world. To get us started, do you mind introducing yourself and the game we're here to talk about? Yeah, thank you for inviting me, and hello, everyone. Uh, my name is, uh, it's super hard to pronounce in, in English, but my name is Jędrzej uh, Napiecek, uh, which is a super typical Polish name. And uh, yeah, and I'm from Poland. I'm right now in Warsaw, where there is a beautiful spring. Nice. And, and, and just so that everyone knows, what is the game where, obviously we'll talk about you a minute first, but what is the game we're here to talk about, so everyone knows? Yeah, and, and I'm here because I'm a writer and also a CEO of a company which developed a text-based RPG called We the Refugees Ticket to Europe. So yeah, let's let's start with as we were kind of talking before, right? So we'll get into the game in a second, but but you come from I think a very interesting background, and especially it makes sense kind of with your background, like like being a text based RPG is like the big focus at least for your game right now. Do you mind kind of talking about kind of like uh, where, where do you and the team's kind of background kind of lead you to this place? Yeah, sure. Um, I mostly based in a cinema because I'm a graduated. Uh, I graduated from a screenwriting department in which film school, and oh, it was like eight years ago. And uh, after after that, I I have this feeling that cinema became became more and more uh, not to say boring, but repetitive medium for me. And uh, besides the art house cinema, which was great, but there was no audience for it. Uh, but uh, but uh, I I had this feeling that, uh, especially after uh, after the three years in the screenwriting department, that making movies is like a, it's the scripts are written from the templates. It's like you know there are all the structures and. Uh, the three act structure, the eight bit sequences, and and a lot of different stuff, and hero's journey and stuff like that. And I have this feeling that okay, it works, but if we go to the mainstream cinema, then it's it's very repetitive job. You're just changing the content, but the story, the structure became uh, is is the same. So at the same time, it was 2014. Uh, I played the this war of mine. It was uh, the premiere of this game, and it really blows my mind and uh, give me this feeling that a lot of things is happening in a narrative way in the games right now, 
and they are they have matured enough to to tell the compelling and meaningful stories and yeah i want to be part of that revolution and this was the moment when i thought that maybe my cinema experience could translate into a game dev and yeah that was where the story begins and at the beginning i knew nothing about game dev but yeah but i have this drive that i have to discover it and experience from from the first hand so i started uh, work at as a as a game tester and i i was in a qa team of a uh, witcher 3 and uh, i found there my uh, actual business partner machi stanchik who is also a game designer of we the refugees and we share common ideas like we want to make meaningful games and uh, we decided that yeah maybe 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 we can make a game together and this was a time when the first media news about so-called refugee crisis uh, occurred in media and and i have this feeling that this is a very important subject and also being uh, living in poland where the social um reaction to the middle east and africa refugees were very negative i have this feeling that i don't know maybe if nobody gonna do this here so maybe i should do this game and this is how the story begins together with Maciej, we started to um, design this game make first prototype and to l- look for a for a team team members and uh, yeah it was a long journey it took like four maybe even five years for us to to find financing to learn how to make games to complete uh, uh, to find all the of the team members but at the end in 2020 we received a, a grant from the european union which allows us to finance the game and here we are three years later from this grant and about eight years later from this idea and the game will have a premiere in yeah at the, at the beginning of may wow that is that is i think that's sort of story that's a long journey i think for people who would think of like when when yes especially like when when people think of like as you're saying how this is a text-based rpg like not saying it's easy right stretch but it's obviously it's a different type of resources i need in this project versus like a graphics intensive project too so i'm kind of oh go on yeah there is you know there's like uh, two graphic designers which made almost 100 hand-drawn illustrations for the game there is a music composer who made 90 minutes of soundtrack there is uh, a someone who's making uh, animations uh, for maps and there is uh, uh, someone who is implementing all the content I, I I wrote for the game because, and there is a lot of content because there's a uh, three hundred thousand word script. And for example, Witcher Three is for maybe five hundred uh, words, hundred thousand, four five hundred thousand words. So we are like sixty. 65% uh, of the Witcher 3 script. So it is a long game and uh, yeah and somebody have to you know implement uh, all the words into the game engine and there are programmers and 
and uh, consultants because uh, we consult the script with uh, uh, two people. One is a girl from the foundation which helps refugees, and another one is a girl who is a uh, she's living in uh, North Africa and she's a journalist. She's from Poland, but she's living there for like last few years. So. If if you combine all those people, it's gonna be like twelve, maybe fifteen people involved in this project. But you know, not all of them work on the on this project uh, full time. It's it's like a project that, uh, yeah, there is a finance financing for it, but it's more like a passion project, something like this. And a lot of people are working after hours, so we've got also very experienced teams, uh, team with uh, people who are. Uh, on their daily basis, working in, uh, I don't know, for example, for example, Eleven Bit Studios, um, or Vile Monarch, or or Techland, or or something like this. So there are big companies, uh, but uh, thanks to it that we are doing it after hours. These talented mem- talented members of these teams could help us uh, making this game. No, that's that's very interesting too. So, so just to clarify, then I know it's, it sounded like it was a bunch of part-time work, kind of. But how many, how many, how many hands, kind of, generally speaking, are touching this game right now? How many hands during the whole process? Yeah, like, or what was the biggest your team got at one point? Oh, it's hard to say because you know, some sometimes somebody uh, join our team just to make some task, which was like for three or four months. So. If you combine all those people, it's going to be a few dozens of people. Uh, but uh, I will say that the core of the team is about five, seven people with about another five, seven people who are uh, present during the whole process. And a lot of people who are contracted for a, that's a simple simple tasks. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is, I have to admit that's a bit larger than I think I realized the team was. Um, yeah. So let's let's talk about, we kind of have been talking around and getting towards the game. Let's kind of talk about the, the game itself, right? So we said this is a text-based RPG. Uh, do you mind kind of talking about, what is, what is the premise? I don't think, I don't think kind of we've kind of dug into that yeah. a bunch of. Yeah, so in the game you play as a wannabe journalist who is contracted to make his first journalistic job. And this is going to be a reportage about refugees. So you have to gather information about them, research the subject, uh, find refugees, uh, make interviews with them, uh, and maybe even try to reach uh, smugglers and try to cross the Mediterranean Sea on a smuggling boat together with refugees. So your main goal in this game is to gather as much information about refugees as possible during your time in the game. And uh, this also is connected with uh, our in-game mechanic uh, called notes. And notes are something like like achievements, but I would I like to call it call them uh, meaningful achievements because uh, they are the achievements that really actually really means something. And uh, and this is not like a a collectible, you are just in this mindset of collect a lot of uh, achievements uh, which a lot of players share. But this is like, this is your main aim of this game, to collect as much achievements as possible. And 
and yeah so uh, yes that's the basic premise let's say so wow it's it's interesting kind of let's let's talk about then as you said kind of you're a journalist going through this did you kind of how did you guys kind of get the the point of the journalist when you're writing this kind of did you talk to some journalists that you knew did you guys kind of have to do some bunch of research i'm kind of curious kind of how you got in the headspace kind of these different characters yeah so uh at the beginning uh most of the research was based mostly on uh movie documentaries and uh book reportage non-fiction books i i read about refugees and those were like i don't know 30 maybe even 40 books uh and after that we wrote a first script of the game and make a first prototype of it and then in 2000 18th we went to the moria refugee camp where uh, we met uh, real refugees in person and we showed them the this prototype of the game and also asked them for a feedback and uh, this was a devastating moment for me and it cost me a nervous break breakdown because uh, at that moment i realized that uh, yeah this first script this first prototype was pretty naive and was not portraying the real struggles of refugees it was something like theoretical based on theoretical knowledge and uh yeah and i realized that no matter how many books i read about refugees or how many documentaries i i watched uh, i will never be able to portray the the story of refugees the stories of refugees from them POV because in the first prototype uh, you played as one of the refugees who tries to get to Europe. Yeah, and uh, after this meeting with with refugees in uh, Moria refugee camp, uh, we we started from scratch. We put the whole script into the trash, the whole prototype, and uh, only after that we started writing a new script, the script where you play as a journalist. Because I thought that it would be more honest way to tell this story because as i mentioned i couldn't tell the story from the pov of the refugee no matter how much i try i wouldn't be able to truly understand their experiences their trauma and sufferings and how to is to flee from your home country when the war hits and uh, but i have a lot to say about how is it researching the subject of refugees and then to confront this theoretical knowledge uh, with the real refugees so i made this this trip this journey to moria refugee camp the foundation of the structure and the dramaturgy of the final version of the game because this game is mainly about uh, confronting your theoretical expectations about refugees with the with the practical real refugees uh, re practical uh, stories of them uh, and uh, and this uh, implies a lot of uh, tension i think and i i thought it would be a, a great theme for the game like you know most of the players that's going to play the game will be in the position of this protagonist at the beginning of the of the story because uh most of the players know something about refugees but they are not an experts uh in this subject or they are not 
a professional journalist. So I thought that it would be way more relatable for the players to tell the story from this point of view. No, that's interesting. I also think you going to these camps and kind of you trying to get at least the best you could, this like firsthand experience kind of is very interesting. I'm curious, obviously, maybe not directly, but indirectly, did any of the stories you heard from these people kind of in some way kind of make it into the game itself? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, a lot of, actually. And uh, I'm not saying that this is a true story. The game is not based on a true event. It's not portraying the true events, but it is inspired by a true stories of refugees. Uh, but for example, uh, if I if we met like, I don't know, three, four people from Iraq and they told us uh, uh, their stories and uh, every one of them uh, uh, was focusing on some other details of uh, how is it to live in Iraq, what are the conditions there. So in the final version of the game, I combined those stories of like three, four real persons into like one character of the NPC. Uh, that was a decision like, you know, to... Because there is already a lot of NPCs in this game and... Uh, I, I thought it would be uh, more achievable for the players if there's, there's not going to be like, you know, 100, 100 NPCs, but rather about 20 NPCs. And every one of these NPCs is from a little bit different uh, uh, culture or country. and this, But this is sharing a lot of inside knowledge about this country. So it is inspired. It's not based, but it's inspired on, on true stories. That's that's very interesting. It'd be very a bit hard and and kind of a rough time probably documenting all of it and trying to get all the stories kind of in. Um, I'm kind of curious. How did you guys kind of when you think about writing this experience kind of and taking obviously what is very hard subject matter for anyone? How did you find a way to make this like a journey people went on and like making sure that, like, while you got the importantness of the topic you wanted to out, like, it, it wasn't so intense, it, like, scared everyone away almost. Hmm. I, I'm not sure if I understand what are your intentions in this... In this uh, like, 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 so, like, a subject, like, as a subject matter, right, this is very intense for a lot of people. Yeah. I'm kind of yeah, curious yeah, how, yeah. when writing this, you kind of found that line, kind of, that made sure it wasn't, like so intense that like you kind of scared everyone off from trying to wanting to experience this oh okay i get it now yeah it is super difficult uh subject but uh i think it, it was also one of the reasons we we wanted to tell this story because uh i think that uh i don't know uh you have to do something which is uh very hard to progress yourself and uh, I was in this uh, feeling that I need to progress in my life because I was a little bit bored with my writing and and, and the place in, in life where where I was right there. And and yeah, and I I I I have this. I I did know that this is very sensitive subject and yeah, and it's very polarizing the society. Uh, and. Uh, my decision, our decision was that uh, there is 
already enough trauma and suffering connected with the refugees in culture. So uh, we would like to try to tell the story of refugees from a little bit different angle. And first of all, we got this adventurous vibe of a journalist, of the protagonist of the game, who is traveling to the different country, to the different cultures, to explore different cultures, to discover new exotic cities. And, uh, you know, this is already an adventurous and entertaining theme. So this was the first thing. And the second one was, uh, we try not to focus uh, too much on a trauma and tragedy only, but also uh, to portray like a normal life, normal joys of, 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 of refugees. Because, you know, being a refugee is, is something that happened to like normal people like, like you and me, but it happened for them to be living in a, living in a country uh, where uh, the, the war hits or, or, or there are some other problems. But besides that, being a refugee is not the, a defining character of them being a human being. Yeah? So mm -hmm. we, we like to focus more not on their tragedy and trauma, but rather on the human, uh, humanistic por portrait of, of them. No, I think that's a great, and I think that's great that you obviously kind of looked at these people as people, where I do think kind of in society, when we talk about this always, right, like, I feel like that humanness gets lost. It was just like, refugees, like, it's a group, not like a bunch of humans kind of dislocated kind of from their home. Yeah, you know, they are different people. <laughs> Everyone uh, is, is different there. And... Uh, uh... For example, this, uh, this, this journey to Moria refugee camp, it really changed my, my, my mind a lot because before, uh, before that, when I was mostly reading about them, uh, nonfiction books, uh, I got this stereotype of, uh, of, uh, of a refugee being like uh, people who are uh, defined by their trauma and suffering. But then I came to this uh, refugee camp and I met in person the people there. And I realized that most of the, yeah, everyone there had some trauma and, uh, and suffers a lot during their lives. But uh, it's, it's not the most important thing for them. It's like they were very happy to share like a small talk uh, conversation with us, for example, like, uh, to speak about liter literature or to speak about uh, Champions League and uh, and their favorite football teams and stuff like that and uh, and that was the moment when I realized that hey they are like they are like me yeah and and uh, yeah and I, I wanted to portray them that way. Well, that that makes perfect sense. So if people don't remember the game we're talking about is we the refugees ticket to Europe. Uh, the game currently has a demo available on Steam and comes out May 1st. So real close when we were recording this. Uh, I gotta ask, because we can just tail into this. Uh, how much are you sleeping? Are you actually sleeping? Or is the game still kind of like in that, like, we have a few weeks, we gotta finish a few things upstate? Yeah, I am sleeping. Uh, most of my work right now is mostly marketing and... Uh, and... Uh... Uh, and, you know, making podcasts like that. So this is my main work for a few last maybe weeks. 
uh, and most, but my uh, business partner, Maciej Stańczyk, who's a game designer, I have, I think he could have problems with finding time to have enough sleep because he's dealing with uh, most of the technical stuff, like uh, fixing the last box and, and stuff like that. Uh, so I think he, he could be sleepless right now, but uh, for me, you know, the, the, the writing part of the game uh, finished a long time ago. And uh, after that, uh, I'm, yeah, you, the main part of my job was done. Yeah. At the moment I'm, I'm making uh, some artistic decisions, but there's not, not a lot of things that we can change before the premiere. So it's like the final touches of the game. And those are only minor changes. Well, perfect. I want to say thank you again for taking time out of your afternoon to talk to me today. I know people should go wishlist the game on Steam if they have not already. And then your website is, I believe, actzerogames.com? Uh, yeah, yeah, actzerogames.com. Perfect. Well, thank you again and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you very much and have a nice day also. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to one of these interview episodes of the SWW Show. I'm Mike. Today with me a special guest from decently, decently around the world. To get us started, do you mind introducing yourself and the game we're here to talk about? Yes, hi. Thanks for having me on. So I'm Philip, and I'm talking about Up to Par, which is a, uh, it's a roguelike mini-golf game. So... so- I've, I've got to immediately ask, right? Because obviously golf, I have this idea. Roguelite's like this thing over the last few years you've kind of seen rise. Um, why did you think of combining the two? So it came out of a little experiment, really. It wasn't planned to be a roguelike mini-golf. I was making um, a procedurally generated level for a different game for mini-matches. Uh, and it was fun playing uh, a level that changed every time. And you could just come back, and it was new, and it was exciting, and it happened to be a mini-golf level in mini-matches. And I was like, this could be its own game. And so I made a little prototype, and it was fun, and a roguelike mechanic really made the most sense for a type of game that you come back to and want to replay. So obviously when I say roguelike, I I kind of picture this this cycle of, I keep going as far as I can, there's some sort of die condition, and in like stuff kind of unlocks over time, there might be a sense of progression, there might not be kind of. Would, would you explain this to someone? Kind of what what are the pieces that kind of that really make it kind of a roguelike to you? I think you've hit the nail on the head. Really, it's something that you play a small slice over and over, but it's different every time, and you go a little bit further every time because your skill gets better. But also, so that's a rogue like, and then a rogue light, which is what I'm saying. Up to par is. Uh, you go a little bit further because you're also unlocking something that helps you maybe over time. So your skill gets better, but also your abilities and equipment in the game gets better. Uh, it gives you a bit more satisfaction and a little bit more progression than a, a traditional roguelike. No, that 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 makes a lot of kind of sense the way you're kind of viewing it. What do you kind of? So I'm curious when you when you started developing this, obviously, because we're talking. There's a demo up, but the game comes out kind of later this year. Uh, when you started development, did, what did you kind of picture as, like, the limiting mechanics, right? Because to me, when I say golf, the obvious limiting mechanic is either the amount of strokes or the amount of balls you have. 
I don't know, kind of, that's what you were thinking, or kind of, because obviously to me, there has to be some sort of obviously lose condition, kind of, for this to, to make sense. I can't remember exactly how it fell into place, but it definitely started as a traditional golf mechanic. It counts the number of shots, and you got through a specific number of holes. Uh, but it's it's not a roguelite or a roguelite uh, with that mechanic. And so when I started introducing items, I needed a way to make sure that you didn't just keep playing forever. Uh, obviously, making the courses more difficult helps, but then you just take more shots to get through it. So at some point, I capped the shots. and was like, oh, you can only spend 20 shots in the entire game. And that was fun. But the end kind of sneaks up on you because you're counting down from a really large number, so there's no pressure at the beginning. And later on, suddenly you run out of shots and there's nothing you can do. You just The game ends. Uh, so the the evolution, I guess, or the progression from that was that you get given a specific number of shots per hole, three in this case, and you have to use fewer than that on average at the beginning. You know, you, you've got easy holes. You can save up a few shots to use later on if you get a two and a hole in one potentially. And then later on, it might be taking three or four shots per hole, so you're slowly eating up your reserve of spare shots until... The, the, the holes get too difficult and you run out of shots. That's such an so interesting... Just... Like, so to me, that's very interesting because what you just said to me is the same thing, right? If you gave someone a raw number of shots, in the end of the day, it's still an average per hole, but it's the way you delivered that message, I think it's interesting to me, that fundamentally changes that. So when you say the shots, we'll say three. I don't remember if that's always true enough. You, um, When you say like it keeps it under so much, kind of, did you view it as at any point if I go over three... I'm done, or can I like save myself in the next few holes? There always needed to be that flexibility because it's it's no fun if you're on the edge all the time. Uh, so so having a little bit of that that bank that lets you save some and use some extra uh, just makes it a softer game. And it's I guess as an overarching vision for the game or a philosophy really when I'm designing games is I want games that are a bit more relaxed, a bit more chill to play. And roguelikes traditionally aren't particularly, they're quite hard and quite unforgiving. And so having this, this philosophy of like, I'm going to make it slightly softer, slightly more you know, relaxing to play. Uh, that's kind of flowed through into most of the design decisions I've made designing the game. No, that, that's interesting, and I do, I do appreciate it, because obviously I think roguelites and roguelikes, I think both of them kind of, it's always each of them has to make that decision, right, of how difficult I am. I, am I the, like, going to, like, the eternal level of this, or am I going more to, like, the roguelikes who are, like, super friendly level, like, the back-and-forth pull? Did you ever think of, kind of, tilting those levels way more and making this hard, or do you think, like, golf is hard enough, let's just try to find new ways to kind of not make it super hard? I just, oh, I don't play that type of, of game and I just it never really occurred to me that I wanted to make one like that it's always been a game that's supposed to be fun and yeah relaxing to play mini golf should be relaxing and fun <laughs> no that, that's very valid um, I, I feel like there have definitely been courses though that, that are not <laughs> but um yeah the, the ramp up I have to admit uh, still needs a wee bit of tweaking sometimes it feels a little unfair when you get a hole that's obviously going to take six or seven shots to finish near the end of the game, and you've only got three left. That's a, that's a very interesting, like, yeah, because it's interesting, because you have the extra realm of, like, obviously when people assume the longer you go, there's a sense of, like, difficulty happening. And it's, do you, do you ever think of, like, 
trying to tell people... Like, this is an interesting thing, I feel like, because obviously people know how many holes there are coming, but it's, like, hard to almost communicate to people, like, hey, this hole is actually harder than the next one, because just naturally you kind of assume over time it gets harder and harder and harder. Well, it's hard to judge how difficult a hole is as well, because it depends a lot on people's skill and, I guess, comfort. So I know some people are very good at aiming shots to bounce in exactly the right places, whereas others will, will be good at sort of threading the needle through really thin passages. And uh, different types of holes are different difficulties depending on who's playing. So even just designing a algorithm that says, I'm going to generate a hole that is harder than the previous one, but easier than the one after. Uh, it's, it's tricky, and it's not always possible to get it that progression 100% perfect. Because to clarify, this is this is a, a rogue in the true sense of each level has... I'm assuming you have some sort of piece in the back end, but they're, they're like random in the sense of they're not set levels every time I play through hole two or whatever. Absolutely. They're randomly generated from a, a bag of random tiles that are assembled together in a way that makes sense. Uh, yeah. And as you progress as well, you unlock... Uh, more interesting tiles, I guess, that make it diffi more difficult. So the first few runs are actually easier because you're only using a small subset of the tiles. And as you progress further, you start introducing more complicated tiles into the mix. i got to ask then, what, so the, obviously you said the more I play, the more complicated tiles kind of get thrown into this bag I can pull from. What is, what, from a player's point of view, kind of, is there something I'm getting for completing these harder ones or these easier ones, or am I just always hoping my run is kind of what I want to play at that point? So there's a meta progression that lets you unlock new courses and new types of course to play on, as well as unlocking, obviously, items and, uh, you know, different types of ball you can play with. And so the good is all mixed in with the bad. To unlock the exciting new course you have to progress through unlocking slightly more difficult tiles that hopefully also make the courses more interesting to play, but do make them more difficult. Oh yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I also want to talk about, obviously, the next thing that, that seems to be kind of a big advertising kind of game is obviously there's a sense of, like, progress you just said, and you could kind of, like, there's a, there's a store and stuff. Can we try and talk about how these, these mechanics kind of work and, and change the game for players? Yeah, of course. So there's... I guess two progression mechanics, and I think that's important because roguelikes or roguelites traditionally have uh, a progression that happens as you're playing, uh, regardless of, of what's happening in the game, really. So as you, as you play more hours, you unlock more items to help you progress. And that's important because you need to ramp up your skill by playing the game a lot, but also it's no fun if you can never get past a certain point. So, for me, that's not entirely the case. I split it into two parts and up to par. So, there's the level progression that's based on how far you've gotten. So, the further through the game you get, the more it unlocks new pieces. So, that's kind of the skill-based one. And then there's the shop mechanic, which is your spare shots. The shots that you're not using, you can use to unlock things in the shop. And the two are mutually exclusive, which is a really interesting trade-off. The further you go, or the further you want to push in the game, the more spare shots you have to use. You're using up your bank of, of shots that you could have used in the shop to buy things. But if you use them in the shop to buy things, you can't go further because you start each new course or each new round with fewer shots. Uh, so if you're getting frustrated, or if a player's getting frustrated trying to progress through the game in terms of like going further, 
you can also just take a pause, bank some shots, buy some new items. And that lets you effectively power up your abilities and then try again. So uh, there's, yeah, there's kind of a trade-off for the exclusivity between the two types of unlocks in the game. Well, that's interesting. I want to talk about, you just said the how I could kind of, I don't know if I understood this right, use kind of my, my future shots as, as currency. Is that Did I understand that correctly, kind of how that works? Absolutely. So you play through a course, each course is six holes at the moment, and say I, I average two to a hole. So at the end of my first course, I'll have six spare shots because I've been given three every hole that I've only used two. And then when I get to the shop, I can use those six shots to buy items. If I don't use them to buy items, I can save them for the next shop. So I can just like add them up over time, pushing my luck to see how far I can go. Uh, or I can use them to start the next round with a couple of extra shots. So instead of starting with three, I'll start with five for the first hole. Uh, just to be extra certain that I won't you know, run out of shots halfway through my run. That's that's interesting. I, I appreciate that current system a lot, actually, because it's a very... It's like, I forgot what game... There was, um... It's like, I think, to the Metro games, kind of, like... There are shooters, but you, like, use the ammo as currency. It kind of makes it, like, that idea of, like... Yeah, you could you could use this stuff to, like, give you something else, but you're losing, kind of, your base just firepower. Your base kind of... Kind of, like, stuff. Uh, what, Let's talk a little more, kind of... What can players kind of buy in the shop, right? So, obviously, you talk about how you could use that to get some items, kind of, that, that would kind of change the play? What's an example of like one of your favorites or one of you looked working on? Well, the gimme is definitely my favorite. If you get close to a hole, it'll just gimme it in for you. Um, giving you effectively uh, larger holes or extra shots at the end. And most of the items are sort of designed around these subtle power-ups, so nothing's going to skip you over a hole or make you extra powerful, but things that cause frustration, like, oh, I did it the shot slightly too hard and it just bounced over the hole or I went around the corner too fast and it bounced out of the course. There are items that will help you, you know, going, hitting the pole will count as going into the hole or bouncing out of the course will let you retake it with no penalty. Later on, there are upgrades for, uh, there's like a little teleport that'll just teleport you, you know, maybe 10% along the hole, but it could be enough to get over a tricky obstacle. These sort of things that, just make you feel a little bit more powerful, but don't completely change the balance of the game. Yeah, that is that. I I appreciate the like you get really like I'm picturing like on the screen kind of like the conceptually like the whole kind of expands and stuff. That that's an interesting way also to kind of just change the difficulty of mini golf, right? Because now you're like, hey, you could skip a thing or get or get like get close. And at what point? Because obviously, like there there have actually been a few kind of like golf twist games over the last kind of few years. I'm curious, kind of, when you were designing this and thinking about this, was there a point to you where this isn't mini-golf anymore, or did you kind of always, like, feel like, we're still mini-golf, we're just kind of tweaking these rules? I mean, I always joke to people that it's, uh, you know, it could totally replace this, the theme with snooker or pool, uh, in billiards, any of these games, because it's a game about, you know, bouncing balls off walls at specific angles, and mini-golf is a great outlet for this, but the theme could really be anything. It doesn't matter. No, that, that's interesting. I also, I also appreciate the honesty of that one, too, of like, yeah, no, it could be anything. Like, you chose it because you like mini-golf. It's not like it. It's it, it's an, yeah, almost absolutely. necessary in the same way. It, ev- it evokes a feeling that 
the game sort of comes together to convey, which is, is that like, it's fun. It's interesting. If, if I wanted to make more of a, a difficult punishing roguelike, then that would be the wrong theme for it. You could do something else that relates to physics, but, uh, mini golf, the theme is very much there to, to convey the feeling of the game. So here's the next one I got to ask. So the big thing that, that when I saw your game that, that caught my eye was how it's um, kind of multiplayer. Like, you could you could play with other people, you could play competitively, kind of. Do you mind kind of talking about kind of how, how that works, kind of, and especially with this, like, roguelike kind of system in the back end? Yeah, so my last game, Mini Matches, was is multiplayer, and... My first game was two-player cooperative multiplayer and making a new game. It's like, I should probably make it multiplayer. It's fun. It's interesting. Uh, the people who played my previous games like multiplayer games. I should make another one. And so I just, as I was playtesting or prototyping, I just dropped in a few more balls. I'm like, oh, this is fun. I can bounce them all around. Two players. I don't know how the rules work yet, but the two players playing together is always a laugh. Uh, so I picked a fairly arbitrary number. I'm like, oh, 16 players sounds like fun. And it shouldn't be too taxing on the networking side. So uh, 16 players it was. 16 players on such a small course on it. It's just because, like, looking at it, like, I'm like, it seems fun to me because the chaos of it, I'm assuming, is insane. It is. And to begin with, obviously, the balls, everyone does their own thing. They, they don't interact. But... There's a mechanic where you can unlock metagame elements, I guess, or game settings as you progress. So you can unlock the ability for balls to interact. You can also unlock the ability to change the rules of the game. How many shots do you get? How long are the courses? This type of thing. Um, So I think people that play in a bunch have unlocked a lot of these things and want to play 16-player games where the balls interact. It's going to be absolutely bonkers, and it's going to be hilarious. Well, I've got to ask, kind of, the thing I thought of when you said, you said, so, like, obviously you're saying you're unlocking these rules. Is it kind of like how in the base game panel, so does that mean one of the players is spending their balls to unlock these rules, or, like, I'm going into a match or predefining these rules? So there's two types of unlock. There's the one that unlocks something permanently forever, uh, and then there's one that equips an item, is what I'm calling it, which is during a round. So there's actually a higher cost to unlock something at the very first time. You have to work really hard to try and get your uh, your gimme bonus potentially, or your um, changing the course, the power of a course bonus. But once you've unlocked it, you can use it fairly cheaply in the game, or you can use it for free at the beginning when you're setting up. So in this case, once you've unlocked the rule changes, you can just use them whenever you want. No, that that makes perfect sense. Uh, and just to be remember, the game we're talking about today is Up to Par, which currently is a free demo available on Steam. Uh, it's saying currently on Steam that your release date is Q2 of 2023. Is that still kind of accurate? Is that kind of still up in the air? Q2, Q3, yeah, somewhere around there. It's uh, it's coming up to release. It's, it's close. Perfect. So, yeah, so the game will be out, we'll say soon. Soon now, so it can mean a lot of things in game development. Definitely soon. Sign up to the newsletter or join my Discord, and you'll get the reminders for when the, uh, the launch comes out. Perfect, and I assume people can find that Discord link on your website. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking at it. So yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so people go go check out the game. It is up to par. I want to say thank you for taking time to talk to me about the game. Before we go, I always like to end. Is there any other feature or something about the game that you feel you really missed that you want to really have people go home with? 
I think we've covered the big things. Uh, playing a multiplayer, we touched on at the end, that really is such a fun way to experience a game like that because there is a cooperative mode as well as the, the head-to-head mode. And that's the one I prefer. Like sitting down, playing through it with someone, working together to co- overcome these challenges, to like get through as far as you can, debating about which items you're going to buy. It can be a cooperative game, and each player can like add as much to the run as they want or not. So it's, again, it's relaxing, it's fun, and you know, it's a multiplayer roguelike mini golf. Don't think there's many of these out there. I think that sounds like a great way to close. Remember, the game is up to par. If you want your multiplayer roguelite mini golf, I think we might have found the game for you to go check out. Again, thank you for your time today, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. The SW Show and all of its affiliate podcasts are podcast by me, Mike Maroney, and AJ Losey. By sometimes by our contributors, including Corey King. You can follow the SWW Show on social media at the SWW Show, or sooner or later, you go to patreon.com slash SWW to help us out. Thank you. We hope you enjoy the rest of your day.